Welcome everybody to another episode of the Nonprofit Show. We have not only one of the great minds in the nonprofit sector with us today, but a real trooper because Tony Bell joins us. We don't always get to get him, so it's a real pleasure when he does. But he is coming to us from a remote location because I am. His community was just slammed with a big storm and all the power's out. <laughs> so we do what we got to do, right? I mean, it's we are in the nonprofit space. We are tenacious and we solve problems and we show up when we need to. So it's always an honor to be here uh, for the nonprofit show. Always an honor to be with you, Julia. And I love the Ask and Answer episodes. Yeah, I do too. You know, Tony, we've been doing this now more than 800 and almost 830 <laughs> episodes. And I'll tell you, um, the questions are fascinating. And what I think is really interesting when I step back and I, I think about the trajectory of this, how the questions have changed mm. since the start of the pandemic. And new questions are coming in all the time. I mean, I can see how issues are coming up with, you know, the nonprofit sector um, as we evolve during interesting times. And so that's what I think is so interesting about this. But um, anyway, Tony Bell, Senior Director Relationship Center of National University, um, National University based in San Diego. It has uh, online portals throughout, you know, obviously, in I would say any English speaking student, right? Sure. So, I mean, it's an international uh, educational institution, and uh, it's really been fun to to work alongside with Tony and his team there. Thank we you. are super, super grateful for the support of our sponsors, and they include Bloomerang, American Nonprofit Academy, your part-time controller, nonprofit thought leader, fundraising academy at National University, where Tony joins us from, Staffing Boutique, Nonprofit Nerd, and Nonprofit Tech Talk. You know, we, I mentioned earlier, more than 800 episodes, and you can get to us from many, many ways through our broadcast um, streaming portals, through our podcast, if you just like to consume audio, and now our app. Download the app. You can take a quick uh, picture of this QR code, and we will be in contact with you every day once the show is up. It's super, super cool. Okay, you ready to go, my friend? Let's do it. Let's see what kind of questions have been presented to us today. Okay, Samuel from Denver, Colorado asks, we are reviewing our board diversity policies and it has been suggested that we do not allow elected officials to sit on our board. This is primarily due to potential conflict issues. Any thoughts? So it, it is a great question. It and is. I and I could I could see why uh, certain board members would find value in having a local official sit on 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 the board, right? The connectivity, uh, connection to community, all all of that stuff. Uh, but you are definitely sending a strong message to your community when you do that, because it is my belief that then you are automatically supporting that candidate when they run again, supporting their policies uh, just by nature of where they're sit, where they're going to sit in their role with the organization. So, uh, so just consider whether or not that particular elected official might be polarizing, uh, not only to part of the community that you're serving, but maybe part of your donor base. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really a powerful question because one thought I have, Tony, is like if you're in a rural community where you don't have as big of a pool of people, um, yeah, those those elected officials, they're part of the community anyway. And so sure. they are doing this. Um, but I agree with you. I think you have to look at this and you have to be very, very transparent about when is it appropriate to recuse somebody from even mm-hmm. a conversation, mm-hmm. um, not just a vote, right? even recuse himself from being a part of a potential discussion. And I, I agree, man. And this is even what, what you said is fascinating because we are moving into a general election cycle. And so things are going to be amplified anyway. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. you look at the landscape of how, you know, the political situation is, it is something to be thinking about. Um, but well, I wait. love that they're reading, that they're redoing their board diversity policies. Uh, so yes, they definitely want to applaud that. And, <laughs> and, and what you said is really important, Julia, about recusing themselves. Should, you know, should they go down this road or should any organization? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's true of, re- of regardless of what the individual does as a profession mm-hmm. or, or whether or not, you know, they are an elected official. So those conflict of interest policies and, and really holding true to those are really important for all organizations. Right, right. You know, I think you should, I love this, this question, and I think you just need to be really thoughtful about it. I would also wonder, Samuel, going the other direction, what the, um, you know, so if it's like a, a city council or a county government or whatever the, you know, the uh, office is, it would be interesting to know what their policies are, right? I mean, wouldn't you? I don't know, but I would think that they, whoever that government organ uh, agency is, would have some sort of uh, guidelines. I'm sure. I'm sure you're absolutely correct with that. So yeah, it, it's kind of going to go both ways. Really interesting, Samuel. Thank you. Hey, Derek from Houston, Texas, writes: How hard should we push our own employees? to contribute to our nonprofit. I know our board has to have 100% financial participation, but should we try this with our own staff? They don't make a ton of money, yeah, but they have a lot of heart. <laughs> I'm sure they do have a, a lot of heart. And uh, and it is an interesting question because a lot of organizations do consider to what degree should they encourage their employees to give, you know, to their employer. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, so my feeling is one is you don't push at all. So the question of how hard should we push, you don't push at all, okay. uh, but you provide them with the opportunity. And, and this is certainly very true, uh, in higher ed. Uh, so a, a lot of folks working in higher ed, like I do, uh, it's not uncommon for you to get an annual appeal, uh, from the university. Uh, and there, you know, again, in, in higher ed, there are so many scholarships that you can con- contribute to. There are just so many different ways to kind of find your passion place uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, of supporting the student, you know, and higher ed experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not uncommon. Uh, so provide them an opportunity, mm-hmm. include them perhaps in your general annual campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, they get to see what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You know, that's a great comment. That's a re- that's really powerful because you're right. We don't always see what development's doing. 
Right. No, no, exactly. Uh, so, so that's, so that's what I would recommend. I mean, we don't push it all, uh, but we, we provide them an opportunity uh, to participate like we would anyone else in, in the community. Yeah. I, I, I like your approach on this and um, I have never been a part of this discussion other, I mean, obviously board work, but I've never sure. been in that environment. So this was a somewhat of a, an interesting question, but I love what you just said is magical. Show them what you're doing. Show so, yeah. So that they know really interesting. Well, Derek in Texas, I hope that helps you um, because that's a really big question. Oh, and we might have lost Tony briefly. So let's go nice. ahead and oh, here he is. He's back with us. Um, let's ask this next question and I'm not sure if Tony will be able to join us or not, but let's go ahead and, and take a look at it. What recommend recommendations might you have for me to personally uncover my own unconscious bias that I might have? I'm trying to be more aware of Jedi, but frankly, I don't want to just talk about it without an action plan of sorts. And you know what? This person's coming to us from Great Falls, Montana. Awesome. Really really powerful. Um, I'm not trying to bash Montana, but you know, smaller community, um, probably, probably not a lot of different types of people having this discussion within their community. Super mm -hmm. cool. Super cool. So good job. Well, what are you, what are your thoughts on this, Tony? Uh, yeah. So there are a lot of learning opportunity. So if you have access to LinkedIn learning, there mm -hmm. are a lot of there are a lot of workshops and courses available uh, through LinkedIn learning around unconscious biases. Uh, there are also, uh, especially in today's landscape, uh, there are terrific opportunities and you know lots of books. So think about uh, you know maybe even within the entire organization, uh, creating some type of book club. We do that uh, within it. our business unit yeah, at National University. We're currently all reading the same book uh, to support our DEI initiatives. And then we meet every other week to discuss the content in small groups. Uh, so really consider some type of book club to help drive this uh, across the entire organization. But really applaud, really applaud Name Withheld for realizing that we all have unconscious biases. Uh, it's not, I mean, we all do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, whatever we can do to uncover those and realize how to put ourselves in check when we realize that, that we're exhibiting those behaviors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the better we'll all be. Yeah, I, I love the idea of the book club for so many reasons. I think it's a really great idea. Um, and that's another discussion, but I think that's a great way to look at this because my first thought is, is that, you know, name withheld, if you're having this question and you're thinking about it, you're not alone and there are other people right. asking the same thing. So maybe within your organization or maybe within your community or the sector with which you work, um, this is a great opportunity or time to bring in an outside speaker or do some sort of training that that kind of impacts more people, right? Not just you, but gets gets everybody going. And 
I love this. So good job. This is a great question. And, um, you know, even this week, man, uh, with the Supreme Court making some decisions um, that are somewhat shocking to me personally, um, you know, this is a time for us to be reasserting these conversations and talking about this. Mm -hmm. So um, good job, Great Falls, Montana. Okay, let's go (laughs) to Pauline. Pauline asked the question, we are thinking about hiring an outside advocate, basically a professional lobbyist. We work in the cultural space, and while we don't have a specific policy agenda, it might be time for us to move in this direction. Might you have any advice? Yeah, so I think it's it's an interesting question, and and throughout, you know, my experience, I've been with organizations where we've talked about, you know, whether or not there was a value in making this kind of of investment. Uh, in those scenarios, we opted out of that investment only because we felt like the lobbyist really the the core purpose the lobby of the lobbyist really was to drive policy. Uh, If your interest really is connectivity to your local representative or your state representative uh, so that you have kind of that inside track and that that inside uh, champion Mm -hmm. uh, of your organization when it comes to funding opportunities at those levels, Mm -hmm. uh, you could you be able to do that in developing that relationship directly, I would think. Uh, you know, through your through your cause and, and through yeah. your mission. Uh, it's, you know, a, a, again, that's just my opinion on that is, you know, if you're going to invest in a lobbyist, I would think that it's because you do want to drive policy and you do have some sort of policy agenda. Uh, if it is strictly to gain access to funding opportunities, I would think about how the investment in the lobby and the lobbyists might be redirected to invest in a development professional that might be able to that might be able to generate funds for the organization uh in, you know for a longer term uh, so and, and again there, there's so many nuances and and things to kind of dig deep into and uncover in a lot of these questions mm-hmm. uh, but but basically it's just my personal kind of opinion around the investment Mm-hmm. And um, and is it depending on what you what you expect your outcome to be? Is it the right place for the investment? You know, I love what you said, and I think you're absolutely right. The value of hiring another development officer is probably ultimately going to serve you more. But you know, I think maybe, and I know having served on cultural boards, believe me, I know that there's a lot of conflict between the different, you know, performing arts. They don't always play well together, which is interesting. But this might be more of a sector investment, like somebody who's Mm. lobbying for the entire cultural space. So there's somebody that's going to represent the ballet, the symphony, the museums, you know, opera, youth orchestra, all of those things, whatever they may be, to have it more of a sector-specific. Because it's expensive. yeah, yeah, this and and I love what you said there because I, it is a kind of a collective impact opportunity if if multiple cultural arts organizations in that community were to come together 
to invest in a lobbyist and recognizing, just recognizing that whatever that lobbyist did that would contribute to the arts in that community, it benefits everyone, regardless of, of which C3 directly makes the deposit of the cash <laughs> or right. the money. So, right, right, right. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing. And <clears throat> this is not uh, an inexpensive um, investment. And then also, Tony, aren't you required, and I could be off on this, but aren't you re required by law to also disclose that you have lobbyists that you're that are working for you? So, I mean, it does that go in the 990? That's my understanding. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not without its um, peril. I guess I want to use that word. I mean, <laughs> you know. Well, I think. <laughs> I think it's like anything that we do, you know, in nonprofit and, and as nonprofit leaders, we need to do it in transparency. So I would just, you know, to your yeah. point, anything that we do somewhere, there's going to be a place for us to acknowledge that activity, report on that activity. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. We got, um, I think maybe just one more question. Nadine okay. from Philadelphia writes in, we've been, and I love this, we've been messing around. <laughs> I <know me> too. <laughs> we've been messing around. That just says it all to me, in my opinion, for far too long on a statement explaining what we do. I think we need a one sentence statement that says what our nonprofit does. Do you think this matters or should I just go the flow, stick to the script? It's super long and can't be memorized. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Nadine. I've been there with you, sister. I understand. Right? You know. Well, well, I, I love that Nadine is clearly a let's just get it done kind of individual, right? It's like if I can get it done in one sentence and not five or six, then let's get it done in one. So uh so my my guess is that Nadine is is a, a terrific contributor to her organization and meeting goals left and right. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Just, I, just based just based on Nadine will just cut to the chase. Yeah. But uh but of but of course, I mean if you know a lot of times you only have a you know, a hot minute with someone to get your point across. Um uh, and, and then, of course, you know, the hope is that that one sentence then leads to an opportunity for you to schedule time and develop a, you know, a deeper relationship with, you know, with the potential donor. Uh, but I agree with Nadine. If it's possible, if you can get it in, in one sentence, then then do that. What I would recommend, though, if if organizationally, uh, for whatever reason, we can't come to consensus on a one sentence kind of statement about the organization, then take the super long one and 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 use your voice, Nadine, and and consolidate that in your own way. So even though we have, you know, terrific mission statements, vision statements, uh, you know, case for support, all of those things for our organizations, we still have to show up as our authentic self in the delivery of of, of this communication. So take the super long one that you can't memorize, probably because it doesn't feel genuine to you. Yeah, good, uh, good point. You good know, but take point. take the talking points mm -hmm. and be you, Nadine. Uh, but be true to the mission, vision, and values you know of the organization that are clearly defined in the super long, can't be memorized statement. You know, I I love what you said about that because. Um, I'll tell you with the nonprofit show and with the American Nonprofit Academy, I mean, 
my ecosystem, obviously, uh, are nonprofits, right? And uh -huh. many people reaching out to me every day, many, many people really from around the, the world, but predominantly, you know, North America. And I am amazed at the number of organizations who have a name that does not say what they do, or you can't even de define or even into it what they might do. And then when I ask, what is it that you do? There's a big divergence, Tony. There's those that have, you know, one quick statement and then, uh, then others that you can tell they, they're writing free form for a paragraph or two trying to explain what they do uh -huh. before they've ever gotten to the point of asking me to support them or engage with them or asking their question or whatever. And it's a really interesting thing to see, you know, because it, at the root of it, it's a communications issue. Oh, oh for sure. And and you you can usually tell, like you were just saying, you can usually tell when someone's trying to share with you a canned statement, mm -hmm. uh, the, the hesitation, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and a lot of times you'll get more ums in that delivery than you would get if it were free form. Yeah. Because the um is creating the space for them to remember what the next sentence is supposed to be. Uh, so, um, um, you know, so, uh, so, so it's a great, it's a great question that, that they, again, Nadine puts out there, uh, because there, there are, there are those organizations whose, you know, whose communication is, is, is just, you know, too much, uh, for, you know, for, uh, a, what would I say? A, um, an atmosphere of sound bites. Like everyone now lives in sound in sound bites. So, uh, so really, what you what Nadine's looking for is that sound bite that is then going to interest them enough to create an opportunity for a deeper conversation. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking when you mentioned that I served on a board uh, years and years ago that uh, we had an. Uh, a tagline change because our mission kind of changed a little bit and it was literally like six words and the CEO got a stack of $10 bills, $200 worth of $10 bills and went through the campus, which was pretty large and said to employees, can you tell me what our new tagline is? And it was from like the day porters to programming to, you know, and people in the cafeteria, everything. And passed out those ten dollar bills to those that could do could say it, and it was fun. It wasn't shameful. It, it we weren't you know she wasn't shaming anybody, but it was like it spread like wildfire. You know the CEOs going through the campus, and you know, and it was such a great way to get everybody on board with this quick marketing change because we do as our teams need to be able to communicate. I loved what you said about the um moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, Nadine, I think you need to take Tony's advice and, you know, if nothing else, come up with one that's your own and maybe your organization will join in and start using it. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Well, you hey, never this, know. this has been a lot of fun. I want to witness everybody. Tony's um, home office had a severe power outage. And bless his heart, he jumped in his car, tootled around his community to find some power so he could log in with us today. You are 
a champion, my friend, of our sector. Thank you very much. Oh, it's it's always such an honor to be here, really. I, I just can't say it enough. It's it's an absolute joy. So thank you for for inviting me to be part of these really fun and informative conversations. Well, you are welcome anytime. I know you are an incredibly busy and, dare I say, important man. And when we can get you on the nonprofit show, we're excited. So well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. We want to make sure that we express our gratitude to our presenting sponsors, and they include Bloomerang American Nonprofit Academy, your part-time controller, nonprofit thought leader, Fundraising Academy at National University, Staffing Boutique, Nonprofit Nerd, and Nonprofit Tech Talk. These are the people that join us day in and day out on our journey as we educate and, and we connect with uh, nonprofits across this great country of ours. It's, it's truly amazing. You know, Tony, I know you know this number, but it always shocks me when I say it. 1.8 million registered nonprofits in the United States. I know. I know. That's a lot of people doing a lot of great work. It, yeah, isn't that is it. And that's the way to end this week because you are right. It's a lot of great people doing a lot of great work. Hey, everybody, as we like to end every episode of The Nonprofit Show, we want to remind you to stay well so you can do well. 